Section 16 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 36 Wales under Queen Anne. Wales is one of the component parts of the British Kingdom concerning which, up to the present, we have had little or nothing to say in the course of this history. The truth is that Wales did not make herself prominent during Queen Anne's reign, and that the movements going on in that part of the kingdom had not much to do with the political events of the time. Wales had a clearly distinct nationality of her own, a literature of her own, and religious struggles and tendencies of her own, and she took her full share in the events going on at home and abroad, in the battlefields, and in the political developments. But she did not give the British statesmen of the time much occasion to trouble themselves about her condition, or to withdraw their attention from foreign wars, in order to secure her acquiescence in the policy of the empire. Wales, in fact, had settled down into an era of apparent tranquillity after a long history of warlike struggle. At the time when Queen Anne came to the throne, Wales was as thoroughly and securely a part of the sovereign's dominions as Lancashire or Cheshire. Yet she was all the while as completely independent in her social habits and in her ways of thought as if she had been some far remote colony willingly accepting the rule of the British monarch. The Celtic nationality could not have expressed itself more clearly and emphatically than it did among the inhabitants of Wales. The student of history will find in Mr. Green's England an admirable, complete, and most interesting account of the successive vicissitudes of struggle, conquest, and subjugation through which Wales had passed before she thus settled down to become a part of the kingdom. Mr. Green's narrative forming but a few pages of his historical volume, is, of course, only a rapid and closely condensed summary of the events which it describes, but it is instinct all through with sympathetic feeling and with appreciation of the traditions and sentiments which inspired the Welsh nationality. The underlying and unconquerable strength of what we may call Welsh independence was found in that sentiment of nationality, and when English legislators had learned to respect it and give it a fair field for its development, there was no reason apparent to the Welsh people why they should not become contented and loyal partners in the business of the British Empire. The poetry, romance, and general literature of Wales bear a striking and indeed a very natural resemblance to the poetry, romance, and general literature of Celtic Ireland. The Welsh legends remind the reader in all their essential characteristics of that early Irish literature which is undergoing a remarkable revival in our own days. The wonderful and supernatural, the marvellous, are common features of every Irish and Welsh legend and seem to be accepted in both alike as ordinary, familiar, and recognized elements of human existence. This peculiarity is common to all the Celtic races, 
but it is to be especially noticed in the legendary lore of Celtic Ireland and Celtic Wales. The inner movements of Welsh history, whether religious or political, were movements of thought against thought. While men in England were disputing for the maintenance of this or that political party, men in Wales were contending for the superiority of this or that school of thought and of belief. The Welsh were on the whole a practical people always, notwithstanding the wild and fanciful character of their native literature, and although their legends made little difference between the possible and the impossible, the Welsh people themselves were quick to recognize and to accept, where the practical work of life was concerned, the difference between what they could and what they could not accomplish. One might, therefore, fairly describe the manner in which Wales agreed at last to accept her position under English sovereigns as an agreement to the effect that so long as Wales was allowed to think and feel and pray and worship according to her own independent national ways, she would be willing to merge her political independence in the general composition of the British state. Wales had for a long time sent her representatives to the sort of parliament which had grown up as a system in England, and one of the most famous figures in English history is that of Algernon Sidney, who, although not a Welshman, was at one time the representative of Cardiff in the British House of Commons. Wales was always proud of the fact that, according to a settled institution, the eldest son of the reigning sovereign took his title from the Welsh division of the kingdom. During the rule of the Commonwealth, Wales was not allowed even a semblance of fair representation in the English Parliament such as it was. In the series which is called The Story of the Nations, there is a very instructive and interesting volume on Wales by Mr. Owen M. Edwards, and in his book the author tells us that Wales, under Cromwell's time, was led and ruled with a rod of iron. Its members of Parliament were generally strangers, some of them having risen from the ranks during the wars. Their ability and their energy was beyond question. The characteristic charges brought against them were not timidity or lack of ability to govern, but the exuberance of masterful activity, even highway robbery. We learn without surprise that the instincts of the Celtic peasantry brought them into perpetual revolt against the persistent efforts to convert Wales into a mere agglomeration of the English counties. Whether Wales was ruled merely by the right of conquest as in Cromwell's time and in earlier days, or was allowed her fair share of representation in the existing parliament, the result was much the same so far as the Celtic spirit and the Celtic language and the Celtic usages were concerned. The conqueror, whatever his power, cannot make subjugated people forego or forget their nationality and their languages, so long as the rule of iron is still not strong enough to deprive these people of their memory. With the revolution and the reign of William III, there came to be something like a genuine parliament established in England, and the true principles of parliamentary government received, as we have seen, further development during the reign of Queen Anne. There was a singular combination of the ideal and the real, 
of the practical and the dreamy in the Welsh national character. Not the opposing Protestant sects in Scotland herself could argue and dispute more perseveringly and more passionately than the Welsh religionists on questions of pure theology. But the fierce disturbances to which such disputations so often led in Scotland were seldom known to manifest themselves in Wales. The Welsh, like the Scotch, had in general a great liking for the study of law, and after the revolution of 1688, Wales sent to the English courts some of the ablest lawyers known to the period. The author of the book on Wales to which we have just referred observes that Welsh lawyers were the most unscrupulous and the most able instruments of the tyranny of the restored Stuarts. But he adds, Welsh lawyers, on the other hand, helped to secure the independence of jurors and to draw up the Bill of Rights. In the political struggles between Whig and Tory, the feelings of Wales went on the whole with the Tory side of the controversy and showed for long a lingering inclination toward the cause of divine right. But at the same time, it was to be said that Wales gave many able representatives to the Whig side in Parliament, and indeed the general character of the Welsh nationality was too shrewd, too inquiring, and too thoughtful to put up with one pattern of representative when questions were under discussion to which a practical and a political answer would have to be given. There was a strange lack of affinity between the general character of life in England and life in Wales during the reign of Queen Anne. Notwithstanding the splendor of intellect which distinguished England during her reign, it must be owned that the general character of English life was somewhat prosaic and commonplace. Even the poetry of England at that time seldom soared to any great height of imagination, and when it endeavored to appeal to the loftiest emotions, seemed unable to make the effort except through the process of imitating the grand old classic authors. The literary schools of Queen Anne's day do not appear to have set much store by such English authors as Chaucer and Gower, and even Shakespeare himself was not so thoroughly appreciated as he had been in former days and was again in later days. In Wales, on the contrary, there was an almost universal and deeply rooted sympathy with the past, its dreams, its legends, and its music. It would have been impossible to find an intelligent Welshman in whose soul the old-time history of his country was not kept alive. There must have been some quality in the nature of the typical Welshman which enabled him to combine the poetic and the practical without any sacrifice of one to the other. During Queen Anne's reign, the migration of Welshmen into English cities and towns, not far removed from the Welsh borders, had not set in to any considerable extent. The feeling of trade rivalry or jealousy, which has been felt in later days by many English classes towards the intrusive Welshmen, who will persist in setting up business places of their own in Manchester or Liverpool and interfering with the profits of the local traders, had not yet begun to be felt, and there was but little interest taken by the England of Queen Anne in anything that Welshmen might think or write or do. 
Welshmen enlisted in the English armies and served in the English fleets. Welsh officers distinguished themselves on foreign battlefields, and Welsh intellect won many triumphs in science and in letters. But the English public in general, and even English historians of the time, took little account of contemporary Wales. There appears to have been a surprising absence of curiosity, if such a word may be considered appropriate, about the ways and the doings of Wales. That part of the island, with all its unsurpassed beauty of mountain and lake, river and valley, had not then become a show-place for English tourists. The keen poetic sympathy which the writings of many Englishmen about Wales at a later time awakened among the public in general had not, during Queen Anne's reign, aroused English attention to the land of legend, mystery, and beauty, which lay on the other side of the Welsh border. To us of the present time who have seen whole schools of English writers devoting themselves to the revival of Welsh legend and romance, it seems strange and hard to understand how the varied English literature of Queen Anne's era should have failed to find any interest in the history, the traditions, and the characteristics of Wales. Perhaps this lack of interest was owing in some degree to those practical qualities in the Welsh nature which we have already mentioned. The Welsh held out for centuries against England's efforts at supremacy, held out again and again with an absolutely desperate stubbornness, but at last there came a time when the leaders of the Welsh people and the Welsh people themselves seemed to have made up their minds that it would be useless to argue with the inexorable any longer. Wales had, of course, no exiled royal family as Scotland had, in whose cause she felt compelled to fight to the last, and she was never treated as an absolutely subjugated and vassal land with no rights whatever left her to claim, according to the principles of rule which were applied to Ireland. The fact, at all events, is certain that at a definite period of her history, Wales gave up the work of resistance and resolved to make the best she could of the actual conditions and of the place assigned to her in the British imperial system. But this practical resolution did not, in the slightest degree, tend to make the Welsh people submit to any process of denationalization. The Welsh nationality remains as distinct a fact in our own time as it was in the days when Wales was yet carrying on her wars with England. English statesmanship had to give up after a while any serious idea of interfering by legislation with the common use of the Welsh language, and at last was even prevailed upon to make a thorough knowledge of the native tongue a necessary condition of certain classes of appointment in Wales. The Welsh people kept on singing their national songs, studying their national literature, and celebrating their national festivals as if the country were an independent state. One result of all this was, as we have said, that the Wales of Queen Anne's time received little notice at the hands of English politicians, historians, and essayists. There were men in Wales at the time leading rival schools in theology, carrying multitudes along with them by the force of their earnestness and their eloquence, making converts and proselytes here and passionate enemies there, and it may be taken as more than probable that the very names of these leading Welsh disputants 
were positively unknown to many members of Queen Anne's successive administrations. Controversy in Wales was, for the most part, a dispute between rival schools of belief and rival systems of education, and arguments such as these did not of necessity call for any intervention on the part of the central government. It is not likely that Bolingbroke or Oxford ever gave himself many anxious hours of thought concerning the possible consequence of this or that religious revival, this or that new illustration of national sentiment in Wales. Mr. Edwards tells us that political feeling in Wales at the beginning of the 18th century can be seen from two books which have to this day universal popularity in Welsh peasant homes. Before dealing with his description of these two works, it is well to mention the fact that Mr. Edwards sets before us his story of Wales as practically consisting of two parts, in the first half of which, he says, I tried to sketch the rise and fall of a princely caste, in the second, the rise of a self-educated, self-governing peasantry. This latter class, with stronger thought and increasing material wealth, rules Wales today. Such, at least, is our author's estimate of the force which prevails in modern Welsh history. We return, then, to the two books which, according to his judgment, best enable us to understand political feeling in Wales at the opening of the 18th century. The first of these is Ellis Wynne's Visions of the Sleeping Bard, which appeared in 1703 and the other is Theophilus Evans' Mirror of the First Ages, published in 1716. We cannot do better than quote some passages from the author's descriptions of these two books. Ellis Wynne gave the affrighted Welshman so realistic a description of hell that it has haunted the imagination of the country ever since. Its scenery is Welsh, the scenery of those wild Marionith mountains which rise in terraced grandeur above the home of Ellis Wynne and of the regicide John Jones. Among its inhabitants are statesmen closely associated by Welsh peasants for a century with the evil one. Its gaping jaws had already received Oliver Cromwell. They were hungering for Louis Fourteenth. The grasping landlord and the indolent tenant, the unworthy minister and the seditious sectary, all that were condemned by the conscience of the time, find a place in the loathsome dungeons on the hot, lurid precipices of the poet's hell. The book helped to give Wales, the politics of the moderate Tories of the reign of Queen Anne, that the Queen maintained right and the Church truth that France ought to be feared, and that dissenters, especially Quakers and independents, should be the care of the justice of the peace. Theophilus Evans, in a style that gradually obtained the perfection of homely simplicity, told his countrymen their early history, how great they had been, how many lands they had governed, and how much they had lost. The imagination of children by many a mountain hearth was fired by the visions they saw in the mirror. The supine inaction of the first half of the 18th century was the seed time of many ideas. We can hardly suppose that the English statesmen or even the English poets of Queen Anne's time found any opportunity of realizing Welsh 
national feeling by the study of the Celtic Inferno, which Ellis Wynne has given to literature, or they had bestowed many glances at the mirror of the first ages which Theophilus Evans was offering to the gaze of the world. Mr. Edwards tells us how the movement for a system of national education began among Welshmen early in the 18th century, and how the religious awakening began, which so profoundly affected the national character before the century was to end. One result of that religious awakening was, as he explains, that the life forces that were drawing men irresistibly to the whirlpool of the French Revolution failed to attract Wales. We are left to understand, therefore, that the Wales which we now know, intelligent, educated, prosperous, peaceful, and intensely national, developed itself without much outside help throughout all the storm and stress of political movements in the other parts of Great Britain. A writer must naturally feel reluctant to quote once again the very familiar dogma about the happiness of the land which has no history. It may, however, be said, with some special application, that the happiest and most productive era of Welsh national life was just that time concerning which British history, at all events, has the least to say. Wales had for centuries a very stormy history of her own, a history which no chronicler can overlook, but when studied from the higher point of view, it is seen to be a comparatively barren record of battle, invasion, and national convulsion. Just at that period when English historians have little or nothing to tell us about what was happening in Wales, when in fact the ordinary reader of English history might find there no evidence that Wales had any genuine national existence, the process of self-reliant, independent development was going on, which has made Wales one of the most enlightened and prosperous parts of the British Empire. Statesmanship might find an important lesson to learn in the story of that quiet national development. Wales has not been converted by force of arms or of laws into a little imitation England on the other side of the Welsh borderline. She has maintained her language, her customs, her forms of worship, her ways of thought, while she cordially accepts every new development of science, art, and letters, and has indeed won a high place as a contributor of fresh ideas to all these expressions of human intellect. Mr. Edwards mentions casually in his summary of the story of Wales during the early part of the 18th century that two false impressions began just then to spread about among Englishmen and Welshmen. One was the Welsh belief that the Englishman had the ingrained insolence of a guilty robber. The other was the English belief that Taffy was a Welshman and that Taffy was a thief. There can be no doubt that Taffy was at one time regarded very much as an intruder by the English trading communities among which he made his appearance, and that John Bull was looked upon by many classes in Wales as a very obstinate, grasping, and overbearing sort of person. But it must be borne in mind that so far as we can judge from writers of the period in both countries, the Englishman did not then habitually adopt the language of eulogy and brotherhood when speaking of his Scottish fellow-subjects, and that the Scotsman did not always indulge in words of affection and admiration for his English brother. Nor do we learn from the literature of the day that the tyrant Saxon and the Irish Papist 
usually spoke of each other in terms of reciprocal admiration. The one important fact which impresses itself upon the mind in the story of that part of Queen Anne's dominions is that Wales was quietly and steadily developing a national life of her own concerning which the other parts of the British kingdom were taking but little account. There was not any other division of the kingdom which was growing more happily into all the conditions of prosperity than that small division of the imperial system which appears to have been making so faint an impression on the minds of English historical writers. Self-reliance and independence, independence, that is to say, of thought and habit and national movement, were the characteristics of the Welsh people at the period when England was actually trembling under the throes of the anticipated change in the royal succession and the struggles of rival political parties to make use of the crisis for their own ends. We do not find that these political parties had any perceptible influence on the conditions and the fortunes of the Welsh people. There was no political or sectarian party in Wales which appears to have engaged itself openly or secretly in any plans for a counter-revolution for the restoration of the Stuart dynasty. The Welsh people seem to have taken it for granted that the act of settlement would be carried duly into effect in the ordinary course of things, and that life for them would go on in much the same way under the reign of a Hanoverian prince as it had gone on under that of a Stuart princess. Nor was this quiet contentedness any indication whatever of a want of patriotic feeling, of an indifference to the general prosperity of the kingdom, or a lack of sympathy with the national hopes and feelings of their English fellow-subjects. The people of Wales, were thoroughly in union with their English fellow-subjects on all that concerned the real interests of the kingdom, and had no other desire for a separate political existence than might have been found in any one of the English counties. Nor, on the other hand, did this state of quietude come from sluggishness on the part of the Welsh, or stolid preference for an untroubled and stagnant condition of life, rather than any effort which might bring about an interruption of life's routine. The Welsh were divided all the time by many questions which had to do with religious worship, with education, and with intellectual development, and were debating them as earnestly and with as much sacrifice to individual interests here and there as if they had involved the fate of a dynasty or the predominance of a ruling party. There is something profoundly interesting in this quiet story of Wales's national and intellectual growth, making its way unnoticed amid the fierce rivalries and tumultuous commotions of contending political parties in other parts of Britain. A people which could thus hold the noiseless tenor of its way without haste and without rest might well be regarded as a perpetual source of strength to that governing system which it had made up its mind thus firmly and thus cordially to accept. Wales had indeed by this time won her title to be regarded as a component part of the British Empire. End of section 16